0: When I was a kid, my my dad in the garage had this half can of orange hand paste. I don't know if any of you have seen this stuff before. It's to clean your hands of grime and oil and grease. My dad was a do-it-yourselfer. He would change oil in the cars or do the brake job or work on the lawnmower and and when he was done, his hands would be dirty. And typically, I was the guy holding the flashlight or handing him tools. And my hands would get just incrementally greasy. And we would go over there to that that half can of orange hand paste. And he'd scoop some out. And I'd get a little bit. And we'd rub it on our hands. It was, it was almost like rubbing wet sand through your fingers. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. You, you know good and well you weren't just taking the grease off. You were probably taking a layer or two of, of skin off with it. We'd then go over to the hose and you'd wash it off. It really didn't sud up like the soap that mom has on her sink, you know, the stuff from uh, Bath and Body Works, the stuff that smells good, but it, it really isn't going to cut through the grease. That's the stuff dad had. You, you knew it was really meant for those tough jobs. E- even later on in college and seminary, I worked with a man that would soon be my father-in-law. He was a farmer and... He would grease equipment you know and and that grease that you run through tractors and farm equipment it's stout stuff and every once in a while it'd get on my hands and even to a point where the, the orange paste really wasn't going to do the job but my father-in-law carried brake cleaner around in the pickup and after I was through greasing equipment I would just sh- shoot a little bit of that on there and it would take that grease right off I'm not real sure how healthy that was but it did the job. I'm no hand-washing expert or, for that matter, expert on soap. I mean, I do know that, you know, the stuff that smells good is nice, but sometimes when you're washing dishes, you need something with a little bit more viscosity or or the stuff you put in the washing machine is clearly different. Today, we're going to get to Mark chapter 7. We're going to come acro- uh, uh, across a group of individuals that we've seen a little bit, but we're fixing to start seeing seeing a lot more throughout the gospel of Mark. They're they're the Pharisees. They show up here and if there's ever a set of hand-washing experts, it's the Pharisees. You're gonna enjoy this passage as they're gonna give Jesus a a little bit of question and trouble about just how much and how we wash our hands And, and Jesus is really gonna cut through all of that to get to the real issue. Let's take a look at it. Mark chapter seven, verse one. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. Now this is the second or third time we've seen that the Pharisees and the scribes have come from corporate headquarters, if you will. Jerusalem is, is the, the epicenter of Israel. It's where the temple is. That's where the center of the spiritual life would be. And so these Pharisees and scribes have come down to see about Jesus and who all the people are talking about. It says they gather around him. I envision them encircling Jesus, maybe even dressed in all of their pharisaical garb, probably bullying, almost intimidating Jesus, trying to show their, their clout, trying to see if, if Jesus is really one of them, a teacher of the law, or is he just some crazy prophet? It says in verse 2, they observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. There it is. They show up and they say, uh, they're noticing, hey, his disciples are eating bread and they haven't done the ceremonial washing. Now, verses three and four are going to be in parentheses because Mark wants to explain why they make this observation. If you're not Jewish, chances are you're not going to understand why this would be a big deal So Mark gives you two verses to give you a parenthetical comment as to why they would make this observation. It's clearly not about hygiene. So verse three says this, for the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders, So they're not going to eat until they come to the table after first washing their hands in a ritual way. Then it says in verse four, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. Now this word washed is different from the word washed in verse three. This is the word baptize, immerse. So this means they not only wash their hands, but they must immerse their whole body And then it says, and there are many other customs they have received and keep like the washing of cups and jugs and copper utensils and dining couches. Clearly these are washing experts. You wash your hands and then at other times you have to wash your body. And then at other times there are certain utensils and depending on the contour of those utensils and cups and, and maybe even what they were made out of. They could lend themselves to ritual impurity, so they would have to be washed. There's a lot of rules here to follow, clearly. The reason why this is important is because for the Jews, ritual purity, ceremonial cleanliness was very important. It's found all throughout the first five books of the Bible, what we call the law, specifically Leviticus. What we find there is sacrifices and offerings, washings and cleanings that would say, this is how you enter into sacred space, that space where God's presence is. This is how you maintain your ability to enter into divine presence. That's why all of the washing and most of the washing is to cleanse you from things that you had no control over. Remember the leper early in Mark where he had the skin disease? That was nothing he had control over. And so therefore he comes to Jesus and asks to be made clean. And he would go and offer sacrifice and cleansing and washing. And therefore he could go back into sacred space. Or what about the woman with the, the menstrual bleeding that she had suffered with for 12 years? Leviticus, it says, those bodily discharges deem you unclean for a period of time. And so you would have to make sacrifice. You would have to make an offering. You would have to wash yourself. And then you would be able to go back into sacred space or the divine presence. What they had done, the Pharisees, that is, they decided that we know you're supposed to be clean, ceremonially clean, but we're not sure how it applies to every area of life. So they added all these extra rules to understand the how that it would be done. How would we wash our hands? How would we wash our bodies? What happens if you're walking down in the marketplace and you bump into somebody and you don't know they're unclean, but to make sure that you're clean, you go home and you immerse your body totally from head to toe in this water, therefore making yourself clean, pure, able to maintain going into sacred space and the divine presence of God. Clearly, this is incredibly important. There were different layers of this. First tier is just washing your hand. Second category, your tier is washing your body. A third category would be making sure all the utensils are clean. A lot of of effort being put into making sure you could go into the presence of God. So that's the the explanation that Mark gives. And then he says this in verse 5. Then the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? So they've already noticed it, and now they're going to go to Jesus. And they say this, here's the deal, we have these traditions, we have these rules in place to make sure that we are clean ritually so that we can go into sacred space, so that we can maintain our ability to go into the presence of God. Why do your disciples eat this bread without first washing their hands? I find this question humorous on two levels. The first one is this. I'm really glad these guys showed up in Mark chapter 7 instead of in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus takes bread in his hands, five loaves and two fish, breaks them, hands them to disciples who then break them and break them and break them and and hand them over to thousands of people. Aren't you glad the Pharisees weren't there saying, whoa, 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 we need to wash our hands or wash our bodies before we eat so that whatever we touch doesn't go into our mouth and then make us unclean. Aren't you glad those guys weren't there for that miracle? I mean, that, that story would read completely different if they had showed up. I find it humorous on a, another level is that they are encircling Jesus Christ, who John tells us is, The embodiment of God. He is the God man, the perfect representation, it says. They are in the divine presence and they are missing it completely. So, funny question. Jesus doesn't think it's funny. Matter of fact, the way he answers the Pharisees says that clearly these guys weren't just curious. They were being judgmental. They were were really questioning the motives of Jesus. So how does he respond? Verse six, he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites as it is written. The word hypocrites in the original language means actor, role player. It's as if Jesus is saying, you guys wake up every morning and you put your costume on and you act out a role that you really aren't. You're acting as spiritual leaders, but you're not really spiritual leaders. You're acting like you are the teachers of the law, but you're not. And he cuts to the quick with that word, doesn't he? And then he begins to quote the prophet Isaiah. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Remember the word heart. We're going to come back to it here in a minute. But this is what Jesus says the prophet Isaiah was proclaiming judgment on the nation of Israel and saying, you guys talk a good game, but your heart is far from me. Now, remember what all this washing was for? It was to give you access to sacred space and access to the presence of God. So these Pharisees are doing all this washing and cleansing so that they can be near God. And Jesus just looks at them and says, sorry, guys, you're actually far from God, just like Isaiah said you would be. That's pretty pointed, isn't it? And then he explains why. Verse seven, quoting Isaiah still. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Now we're gonna see that word commands three more times. And typically when we think of commands and we think of commands in the Bible, we don't think of the commands that men give us. We think of the commands that God gives us. And if I were to ask you, what are the commands of God? Chances are, whether you know your Bible very well or not, if you're new to Christianity, doesn't matter. Most of us would probably think the Ten Commandments the commands of God. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is fixing to hint at. Let's take a look at it in verse eight. This is now Jesus giving his commentary to the Isaiah passage he just quoted. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. He says, you're disregarding God's commands. Very important. I'll explain it here in a minute. Verse nine, he also said to them, You completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. He now says it two times. You disregard and you invalidate God's commands. And now Jesus is going to give an illustration using one of the Ten Commandments to show how they have completely disregarded these important commands of God. He says this in verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Fifth commandment in the Decalogue. Whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. Jesus doesn't quote the Exodus 20 version. He quotes the Leviticus version that lets you know how serious it is to honor your father and your mother. So much so that if you don't do it, the death penalty was to be applied. This is serious. Jesus is saying you guys are worried about washing hands and ritual purity when you ought to be worried about something else. Now remember a minute ago I said there were two types of purity in the law. The first one is ritual purity. The second one is moral purity. Moral purity is what happens when we obey the commands of God. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, honor your father and mother, the list goes on. Jesus is looking at him and saying, you guys don't obey the most important commands, the moral commands of God. Look at what he does is he uses this commandment to show them that they don't obey it. Verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a korban. That is a gift committed to the temple. You no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. This is tricky. I don't have a whole lot of time here. This is actually a sermon in and of itself, but this is what the Pharisees and the tradition of the elders had done. What they had done is they had figured out a way to keep people from having to honor their father and mother, keep them from having to obey this commandment. This is how they would do it. When your father and mother got older, it would have been, traditional for you to give them financial support. But what children would do is they would take all of their property and all of their finances and they would put it under a vow or a core ban and they would say, I'm dedicating everything I have to God. Once they did that, they no longer had to use the proceeds or their, their money as a way to be generous to their parents. Now, somehow in all of this, they still had access to their land and access to their money, but they didn't have to use it to be generous. This was a loophole around a command that God deemed so serious that the death penalty was its punishment if you failed to obey it. This is where Jesus is saying, why are you so worried about the ritual ceremonial law? And you're not worried about the moral law. It it was almost as if they had figured out a way to shelter their money from the government, taxes. It's like taking our money and putting it in an offshore account that the government can't get to, but we can still use it. That's what they were doing. And the Pharisees had figured out a way to break the commands of God with their traditions. Jesus then tells them this in verse 13. You revoke God's word, there it is. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many other similar things. At this point, Jesus quits talking to the Pharisees and he's gonna gather the crowd around him. The reason I think he stops talking to them now is because they know exactly what Jesus has just implied about them. We don't catch it, but I want to help us see it. Ritual purity with sacrifices, washing, offering is something you can maintain, you can do. The problem with moral failure, moral impurity is that there was nothing that could be done about that. There's nothing that could be done if you willfully murder somebody, the only The only payment for that is the death penalty. There was nothing that could be done if you willfully committed adultery. The only payment for that was the death penalty. If you were an idolater, death penalty. If you were a thief, death penalty. If you didn't honor mom and dad, death penalty. You were morally separated from God. And the Pharisees knew it. And Jesus basically said, why are you worried about washing your hands when you ought to be worried about being permanently separated from God? If you're so concerned about going into sacred space, you ought to make sure you're following the commands of God instead of your rules. They knew it. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Listen to Leviticus 18. Jesus says this, Do not defile yourselves by any of these practices, for the nations I'm driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. Murder, idolatry, sexual wickedness. Again, things that go against the Ten Commandments, the command of the law. God says, don't do it. He then says, the land has become so defiled and I'm punishing it for its sin and the land will be vomited out of its inhabitants. God is telling him, if you don't keep these commands, the only punishment is out of my presence. Ezekiel 36 says it this way. Son of man, while the house of Israel lived in the land, they defiled it with their conduct and actions. They defiled it. They made it unclean. So I poured out my wrath on them because of the blood they had shed on the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. Ezekiel 8 through 11. Over and over, it says the glory of God had left Israel. His presence had been moved from Israel because they had violated the moral commands of God. They had decided, we're not going to follow him. And Jesus quits talking to the Pharisees because now the Pharisees know exactly what Jesus has said that they are separated from God, not because they didn't wash correctly but because they're not obeying the law, the commandments. Verse 14, summoning the crowd again. So Jesus now says, enough of you guys, brings the crowd back. Listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. Jesus says, I know you probably overheard what we were just talking about. So here, I want you to listen. He tells him a parable. It's not what comes in you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. Now, again, this would have been earth shattering news for Jews because all they had known for all these years is wash, wash, wash and go in to sacred space. And we wanna be cleansed from the outside. And Jesus is saying, maybe your problem is on the inside. Then look at what happens in verse 17. When he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples ask him about the parable. This happens all the time. Jesus speaks in parables to a crowd. The disciples get him and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can't, can you just explain what you just said there? This whole coming in and out, what does that mean? I thought what we brought into our body defiled us. Like, Jesus, can you explain this? He said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? Do you not get it? Are you like the Pharisees? Are you like the crowd? Are you not fully understanding what I'm telling you? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his, there's that word again, heart. It doesn't go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and it is eliminated. Jesus is saying these unclean foods and this unclean stuff that might be on your hands, all it's going to do is going to go into your body. It's going to go into your stomach and it's going to pass through naturally like it always does. It doesn't affect your heart. It doesn't affect the core of who you are. There's something more to you than your stomach and the physical. There's something spiritual about you. Verse 20, then he said, what comes out of a person, that defiles him. For from within, out of people's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil actions. Does that sound like a lot of the Ten Commandments to you? And Jesus just said this, all of that disobedience comes from here. It comes from within you. That's what defiles you. That's what separates us from God. That's what keeps us from coming into sacred space and the divine presence. It's what's within you. And then he goes even further and he doesn't just say our actions, but look at what he says next. Deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. He's talking about our motives and our intentions. Jesus says it's not just enough that you break the law by actually committing adultery. It's that you want to. It's that you are greedy. It's that you are prideful. And then he says it again in verse 23. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. And then in verse 24, it says this, he got up and left. I don't know about you. Jesus gives no solution to the problem. He just calls it. He sits back and says, guys, This, this washing hands thing doesn't matter because you can't wash your heart. I don't, care if you got, I don't care if you got the stuff at the sink that smells good. I don't care if you got the paste of orange grit. I don't care if you got brake cleaner. It's not going to clean your heart. The problem with you being separated from God is in you. It's a bigger problem. And then Jesus stands up and walks out and goes to the next town. I hope you feel the weight of that. Matter of fact, I, I almost just want to end my sermon right there. Because I hope it makes every one of us ask the question, what's the solution? Because I don't care if you're watching this in Saluder or White Knoll or on a couch, it doesn't matter, you need to listen. Every one of us are murderers, greedy, prideful, adulterer, theft, we do these things. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how much you wash on the outside, You're defiled. Does anybody want to know what the solution is? How come Jesus doesn't give the solution? How come he just stands up? I think Jesus, he he speaks in parables because he wants them to think. He he wants them to dig deep. He, He wants to say, are you here to learn or are you just here for the show? And I think when Jesus gets up, I think it's quiet around the table. And I wonder, I just wonder if some of the Old Testament where God had already told them what the solution would be was starting to come to their mind. So for example, one of the heroes of the Old Testament of the Jew would have been a a guy named King David. You don't have to know your Bible well to know that's the guy that killed Goliath. That's also the guy that when he was king wanted another man's wife. He stole another man's wife. He committed adultery with another man's wife. He lied about it. And then he had that woman's husband killed. That's five of the commandments I count being broken. Many of the same ones just listed by Jesus here. And here's the deal. David knew there wasn't a solution. David knew there was nothing in the law that was a solution. Listen to the words of Psalm 51 as David has to come with, to grips with this defilement he has. Be gracious to me, God, according to your unfaithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion He goes, I have sinned. I need you. Be gracious to me. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. I am defiled. I need to be cleansed. He then says this, verse 11. Do not banish me from your presence. David knows what happens when you steal, when you kill, when you commit adultery, when you lie, when you covet. David knows that you are to be banished from the presence of God because this cannot be in his presence. And David says, please don't banish me from your presence. He says, please don't remove your spirit from me. He's begging God to have mercy. He knows there's no solution. He then goes on and says this, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. David knows there's no sacrifice, no cleansing, no offering, no nothing that you want in payment for what I have done. I am morally unclean. He says, You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice that is pleasing to God is not an animal, it's a broken spirit. He says, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. And to show you that David knew the solution, he says this, these famous words from Psalm 51, create in me, O God, a clean heart. David knew the only solution to our inside moral defilement wasn't washing. It was that we need a new heart. And that's exactly what Deuteronomy says when God says, when I bring you back from all this sin, I'm gonna give you a new heart. Or according to Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit with you. I wonder if Jesus gets up and those disciples start remembering their Jewish Bible and their Jewish history and they think, God's already told us what the solution's gonna be. And it's that we're gonna get a new heart because the one we got is defiled. Romans 3 says, we all sin. We all are defiled. We are all morally impure. Romans 6 says this, that the wages of that is death, separation from God. But there's this gift of God, a new heart that comes from following Jesus Christ, embracing his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Here's my question for you. Do you have a new heart? Have you embraced a new heart? If not, today is the day. I, I, I don't care where you're at, where you're sitting, what you're doing. If you're hearing these words, you just cry out to God right where you are and say, I need a new heart. I am, I am a sinner. I have messed up. I am defiled and I can't be cleaned. The only thing that I can do is to embrace a new heart that comes from God through his son, Jesus Christ. Would you ask for it? Would you be like David and beg for it? Because that's the solution. Corinthians says we've been made a new creation. Paul says that we're not only a new creation, but we've been raised to walk in a new way of life because we have a new heart. If you say those words, if you cry out and beg God for a new heart, would you let us know? Did you fill out the online connect card and just say, hey, I've asked God for a new heart. Can I talk to somebody about that? Will you pray with me? Will you just fill that out? We wanna hear from you. And for those of you, when I was reading this, you knew the solution all along because you have a new heart. You have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I guess my question for you today is, do you live like you have a new heart? Are you walking in such a way that shows you have this new way of life from Jesus Christ? I don't know what they did when he got up, but I'm hoping they thought, we don't know what the answer is, but we're following that guy. Are you following him? Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I... um, I thank you for how pointed Jesus is with the Pharisees and with the crowd and with the disciples. And he lets us know that this is a problem we cannot fix. There is no solution that we can earn or do or a formula we can follow. We need a new heart. And you said you would give us one. David begged for one. And because Jesus died on the cross and three days later he rose again, we can be made new. So Lord, I'm praying right now, if there is anyone who has not embraced and received the new heart from Jesus, that they would cry out for that today and that you'd be faithful and give it to them. That's what we ask, Lord. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.